Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The Peter Schiff Show. We've had a lot of volatility in the markets in the last couple of days, stock markets, currency markets. I know on Wednesday, I think the Dow was down about 250 points and the other markets uh, were down as well. Today, the Dow was up at one point. It was up more than 200 points, although by the time they rang the closing bell, the Dow was up just over 60 points. It's interesting, the catalyst for the rally, because, you know, we had this 200-point rally really right, right out of the gate, right when they rang the bell. And the real catalyst was the retail sales report that came out about an hour before the market opened. And if you look at what the expectations were, it was for a gain of uh, 0.4% for uh, November retail sales. And we ended up with a gain of 0.7. So it was better than expected. But, you know, a lot of that is due to auto sales. And the reason that autos are selling so briskly is because, you know, anybody who could fog a mirror or a rearview mirror uh, can get a car now, thanks to the government. I mean, you have an explosion in subprime auto lending. And so people are taking advantage of the cheap money and they're buying cars. Many of these people might not actually be able to pay for the cars. uh, But, you know, hey, that's the government just trying to goose the numbers. They don't care. They just want to make the economy look good. But if you X out automobiles and if you X out gasoline, because, of course, you would expect spending to be off somewhat on gasoline because uh, gas prices are down, right? And oil, by the way, today finished just below $60 a barrel, so 59 and change. This is a new low for the move and a new, what, five-year low or so in, in crude prices. But if you X out gasoline and automobiles, the, the number came in at 0.6 versus an expectation of 0.5. I mean, barely beat it. I mean, 0.6, they're expecting 0.5. Now, maybe some people thought that the number would have been a lot lower. I mean, I was actually expecting the number to miss. 
That was going to be my expectation, and so we didn't miss. Although maybe some of the sales in November were borrowed from December. Maybe some of the stores had been running promotions all month in November, and maybe we stole some of the sales that might otherwise have taken place in December. We'll see. But if you look at last month, the um, October number, that was revised up from 0.6 to 0.7 growth. So this month, November, was actually below the, the figure for the prior month. So declining into the, the holiday season, I don't know that that's necessarily good news. But just this tiny little beat uh, of expectations sent the Dow on a, you know, on a rocket ship up. And, of course, the dollar went up on this good news about Americans spending money. Right? And of course, again, the economy is not driven by spending. It's driven by savings and production, which we don't have. But you can keep a bubble going with the spending. And that, you know, really people don't make a distinction between a bubble economy and a genuine economy. Just as long as the bubble can keep inflating, that's all anybody really cares about. And the evidence of that is the fact that they're still spending, even if the money is being borrowed and is never going to be repaid. As long as we spend it, well, hey, that's all anybody cares about. But it was such a slight beat. Uh, it's, it's kind of amazing that they would react. But this is kind of how it's been going. I've been talking about this. Any kind of good news that comes out, they just jump all over it, right? And they exaggerate it and ex- expand on it. And they, they infer all sorts of great things about the economy. You know, I was hearing on CNBC, oh, this, this strong number proves how big a boost consumers are getting from lower gas prices. When if you actually look at the reduction in, in what Americans spent on gasoline, it's very, very minor. I mean, it's such a small little decline in overall spending. It's hardly enough to compensate for uh, a lot of other prices that are going up. You know, maybe your gas bill is going down or, you know, gasoline, but plenty of other bills are going up. And so people have to deal with that. But a, a bigger number... And I didn't even know about this until later on today, and somebody pointed it out. But, of course, all these numbers are seasonally adjusted. So the government takes the actual number, and then they adjust it, you know, based on the seasonality. Well, the adjustment that they made to the numbers this November was enormous. In fact, you can look at a chart of all the November seasonal adjustments. I was, I'm looking at one uh, that goes back to um, this one goes back to 1992 and it shows all the Novembers and for some reason this number is huge and it's the third biggest adjustment that they've ever had and it's the largest November adjustment I think since about 2009 and other than 2009 the only November that had a bigger adjustment was maybe in 2003. So a huge big up number. Yet despite this massive upward seasonal adjustment to the actual number, they just barely beat the expectation by a tenth. I mean, what if they didn't have this big seasonal adjustment? And why is the seasonal adjustment so large? I mean, is it just subjective? I mean, who comes up with the amount of the seasonal adjustment? So there's a lot of play in this number. So who knows? I mean, who knows if they got the seasonal adjustment right? So maybe the number is really a lot smaller. Maybe it's a miss. Who knows? In any event, we're not really going to have you know more information until we see the numbers for December. And then we might take a look at the entire November, December, you know, holiday shopping 
season in totality. And there I'm still uh, betting that the numbers are going to come out disappointing. But we've got other economic news this morning that I thought on the margin was negative. But again, it wasn't really mentioned. And that was jobless claims. And even though the weekly claims number was down slightly, right? We got 297,000 last month and it was down to 294 versus expectations of weekly claims at 295. So pretty much in line. In fact, they, they, normally they revised the prior month up. So who knows, maybe the 294 we got will end up being revised to 295 or higher next week. But the bad news was that the four-week moving average continued to rise. This is maybe this, the sixth week in a row that it's been rising. Um, and the continuing claims numbers took a big jump. So again, this is not good news on the labor front. It seems to me that the tide has turned. And of course, I'm expecting a lot of layoffs in the energy sector, the oil patch. Uh, that's where the best jobs that have been created over the past couple of years have come from. And so I think a lot of these jobs are going to be lost. And these are much higher paying jobs than, than most of the jobs we've been creating. So I think we're going to sp- about, about to see a big increase in these layoffs next year, not only in the oil sector too, by the way, but in, in every sector, because I do think that the recovery that everybody is anticipating is going to fizzle out uh, before it actually happens. And so a lot of the jobs that might have been preserved or created based on the anticipation of recovery are going to go away when that anticipated recovery is not actually realized. An interesting thing, too, about the markets today, even though the currency markets and the stock markets were pretty volatile over the last two days. The price of gold was relatively non-volatile. It only fluctuated in a narrow range. In fact, gold had about a what a, a $30 gain or so on, on Tuesday. And on Wednesday and Thursday, really just consolidated those gains. It really you know, it was down a couple of bucks today. It was flat uh, yesterday. Uh, gold stocks, on the other hand, gave up a good chunk of their of their uh, Tuesday gains on Wednesday. They, uh, you know, only gave up a little bit more today. Uh, but gold really seemed to hold in there and and consolidate from that that big move up. Uh, gold's still up on the year now in terms of dollars. But again, you know, if you look at it in terms of so many other currencies in the world, gold is having a very very good year. It's a stellar bull market, stealth bull market, because nobody really talks about it, because everybody prices gold in dollars. Uh, when, they, when they report it, they don't report it in Canadian dollars or Australian dollars, uh, you know, Russian rubles. I mean, it's probably the best year it's had ever in Russian rubles. I don't know. I mean, it's probably a record high. Uh, in fact, I want to do some research on this, but I think that gold has beaten most stock markets, that if you look at the typical stock market, it hasn't beaten the U.S. stock market, but the U.S. stock market has been very strong. But I think gold has outperformed most other stock markets. It's just that when they report it, of course, they always report stock markets in local currencies. But they always report the dollar in gold. So you might have a particular country where the stock market is up 10%, uh, but gold might be up 15% in their currency, but they don't report it that way. So it might not look like you'd better off having invested in gold, But the truth is, I think most people in the world are better off in gold in 2014 than having invested in their own stock market. So it's really only Americans who are looking at a, you know, a weak gold market 
uh, flat gold market, but everybody else is looking at a robust uh, gold market. Now, I think that's going to change in, uh, in 2015. I think America is going to join the party, and we're going to start to experience what everybody else has been experiencing with respect to the gold market. But a very interesting observation, too, and as this was particularly true the last couple of days, is the way the dollar is trading relative to the stock markets. Now, if you've been following the markets and you watch some of these financial stations, you'll hear people talk about risk on and risk off. And what they mean by that is when people are, are, are optimistic and they think the markets are going to be strong, right, and they want risk, they want risk on, they buy stocks, right, they, they buy commodities, they buy foreign currencies, right, they buy stuff and they sell dollars. When they're worried and they want to take the risk off, they sell stocks, right? They sell commodities or, and they buy dollars, right? So the dollar is what you go to when you're risk adverse. But when you want risk, you sell your dollars. And so for a while, we saw stock markets going up as the dollar went down. And when you saw the big rises in the dollar, it was when the stock market was going down. Well, what's been happening recently is you can pretty much clock the stock market as the reverse now of the Japanese yen or the euro, meaning that the dollar is now a risk-on asset, that the dollar is rising as the stock market rises and falls as the stock market falls. Now, to me, this, is, this makes more sense. This is more natural, but this is not what, how it's been for a long time. But I think if the dollar is now seen as a risky asset rather than a safe asset, that makes a lot more sense to me. And it also means that if this persists, that the next time we have a major drop in stock markets around the world, particularly the U.S. stock market, there's not going to be a rally to the dollar, but there's going to be flight from the dollar. And again, this is going to be very opposite of the experience that we had in 2008, where the markets came crashing down and everybody went into the dollar. Based on the way the markets and the foreign currencies have been trading recently, if we had a crash in the stock market now, we would also have a crash in the dollar. And to me, that would make a lot more sense. And I think now we are returning to that. Maybe that's the only you know, normal thing that's going on because everything else, I think, is just delusional in the way people are approaching the markets and their outlook uh, to the U.S. economy. But like all these past delusions, uh, they are going to end abruptly and they will end in tears uh, for those who were not prepared for them. And in fact, for those who, in, who invested based on a thesis, that's going to turn out to be completely, completely wrong. I want to conclude this podcast by talking about an article that I read in New York Magazine. It's on the internet. Uh, the title of the article is The Rise of the Economic Policy Truthers. Truthers, and it's written by a woman named Anne Lowry. Now, of course, the word truthers here is being used to kind of equate the so-called economic truthers with the 9-11 truthers. And if you don't know what the 9-11 truth movement is, these are people who believe that 9-11 was a hoax, maybe an inside job. We deliberately brought down the trade centers ourselves so that we would have an excuse to you know, invade Iraq. And you know, I, I am not a, a, a truther. I, I, I personally do not believe it was an inside job, but I, I know there are some people that do. And of course, there are a lot of people that will say, oh, this is a crazy wacko theory. 
And obviously, Ann Lowry is in that camp. But the reason she wants to put truthers on the economic truthers, right, she wants to label them truthers, is to say that, well, believing, you know, that or believing that the recovery is phony or that inflation is higher than the government reports or believing that Obamacare isn't working, that's just as crazy as believing that 9-11 was an inside job. See, that, that, that's your point. She wants to say, if you believe that the economy is phony, and that's where the economic truther is, because she goes about, she, she writes about it. She doesn't mention me by name at all, although I mean, I, she easily could have. Maybe she doesn't know about me, but I'm clearly a economic truther from, from her perspective. But she writes about three areas where she believes these economic truthers are just irrational and blind to what they should know. Right? They're just like the 9-11 truthers are being irrational. Right? And it has to do with the economy, inflation, and Obamacare. And according to Ann Lowry, economic truthers do not believe we have an actual recovery. They think the economy is not recovering. They believe inflation is a lot worse than what the government reports, so that, they, that inflation is a problem, that it's not quiescent like the government claims. And they don't think Obamacare is working. They think Obamacare is resulting in higher insurance costs and health care costs. And according to Ann Lowry, all these ideas are wrong. According to her, Obamacare is working like a charm. The recovery is genuine and, 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 and it's great. And there's no inflation. And if you don't believe those three things, well, you're, you're just as crazy as somebody who doesn't believe that uh, there were terrorists involved in the 9-11 incident, right? That you, you know, you're, you're, you're an economic truther. And this is such a bunch of nonsense. She's obviously such a partisan uh, you know, Democrat here. Just the fact that she writes so glowingly about Obamacare. I mean, clearly Obamacare is not working. But she claims that it is. She's claiming that insurance costs for employer-provided plans are only rising by about 3% a year. That's nonsense. I know that because I'm an employer and I see my premiums. And I talk to people all the time who tell me how much their premiums are going up. To, to, to say that it's 3%, is, it, it's ridiculous. You know, when I first started paying uh, health care for my employees. And this was like maybe 2001, 2002. I remember, and we, and, you know, we paid based on the age. Now it's just one plan. We pay the same for everybody, whether they're 19 or 60. It's the same uh, premium. But back then it was different based on your age, your sex. And I remember young men uh, were very inexpensive. They were around $110, $120 a month, maybe. And I think the, the older people, if I had older people in their 40s or 50s, I remember there it got maybe in the high 100s, low 200s a month. That was basically it. So maybe my average per person was about 150. Now my average per person is better than 750. And I know that the health care that I was buying back then was a more comprehensive plan and that you had a lower copay and a lower deductible. So we paid less and we got more. Now we pay a lot more and we got less. But for her to say that the people who don't believe that Obamacare is working are nuts, she's the nut for thinking that it is working. It's obvious that it's not. I mean, that, I mean it, it, that, that point is probably more obvious than all the other ones that she makes. And she reveals uh, her political ideology by trying to pretend 
that Obamacare is a huge success. And of course, you know, it's only going to get worse as times go by. I mean, government programs get worse over time. I mean, look at Medicare, Medicaid. I mean, so the costs just explode. In fact, one of the reasons that Obamacare isn't worse is because parts of it haven't been implemented yet. Uh, and so as more parts get implemented, the damage is going to be even greater. But, you know, then she gets into the idea that, well, she goes into the economy and says people think there's no recovery. And she said, well, that's crazy because look at the government numbers. Well, you know, these government numbers are highly influenced, uh, you know, by other factors. And they're, of course, completely dependent on inflation being as low as the government claims. But she's trying to dismiss the concerns of the average guy, because she's saying, look, yes, maybe for some people the economy isn't recovering. They just don't realize that it's recovering for so many other people. But the problem is, for most of the people, it's not recovering. There's probably a small sliver who think it's a recovery, but it's not some insignificant minority, right? It's like she's, she's kind of saying that these economic truthers are as small a minority as the 9-11 truthers. The vast majority... Right. If you look at these economic polls, the people who voted uh, in the last election, the overwhelming majority of people thought that the recovery was phony. Now, what percentage of the voters are 9-11 truthers? Probably a, an, an infinitesimally small percentage. But if you have a majority of people who don't believe there's a real recovery, how can you dismiss that by saying, well, maybe some people don't realize it's a recovery because it's just their own experience. Well, if the experience of the majority is that there's not a recovery, how can you then say, well, they just don't know about the recovery? Well, if the majority of people don't know about the recovery, maybe it's because there is no recovery. Right, if it was just a small you know, sliver of people thinking there was no recovery, like there's a small sliver of people in the 9-11 truth movement, if that was the case, maybe she'd have a point. But when you have the vast majority of people who, based on their own experience, think it's a recession, not a recovery, then you got to question the government's numbers. Because if the majority of the people aren't experiencing recovery, how do you know it is? And the same thing with inflation. You know, trying to say, well, it's just a small number of people. It's not. The vast majority of people. In fact, if you look at any poll that's taken about the economy, where they poll households, and you ask these households, what is your number one economic concern? Rising prices is always at the top of the list. This wouldn't be the case if it was all in our heads or if it was just a few people who thought this way, right? She's acting as if there's this tiny little segment of crazy, radical right-wingers, the same people who don't believe that there were terrorists involved in 9-11. And these are the people, the same people who, don't, who doubt the legitimacy of the recovery who think inflation is higher than the government is claiming, and who don't understand how great Obamacare is. It's not a tiny fraction. It is the vast majority of people. And that's because they are living in the economy. They can't live in the fantasy, the phony number economy, that the statisticians want to pretend. They can't buy the CPI. They have to buy actual groceries. right? They have to pay their health insurance. They have to pay their utility, their cable bills. They're living in the real world not some fantasy. That's why they know there's no recovery. And that's why they know inflation is higher than the government reports. And they know Obamacare doesn't work because they see their insurance bills. So people like Ann Lowry, they're the ones that are nuts, right? They're the ones that should be 
um, you know, compared to the 9-11 truthers for believing this nonsense. They want to believe this government propaganda that's spoon-fed to them. They're swallowing it hook, line, and sinker. But you have other Americans who aren't dumb enough to buy all the government BS. And now you got Ann Lowry, who has bought it all, thinks the people who don't believe the propaganda, they're the crazy ones, when she's the crazy one for believing it. Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies.